You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and I am a holistic nutritionist and cancer coach, and I am very happy that you are with us. Perception, expectation, motivation, and focus are cornerstone, cornerstone concepts when setting goals. There are other pieces to add in along the way, but research bears witness to the fact that for effective goal setting and goal achievement, we need to pay close attention to these four principles. And to help us understand why, we have invited Dr. Emily Balchettis to join us today. Dr. Balchettis is an associate professor of psychology at New York University and the author of Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. Dr. Balchettis has been described as a pioneer of the scientific investigation of behavioral science and motivation. She leads an international team of scholars, writers, artists, and advocates. In her research, she has uncovered previously unknown strategies that increase, sustain, and direct people's efforts to meet their goals. She has authored over 70 scientific publications and books. She has appeared as host for National Geographic and as a guest on ABC, MSNBC, and others. Her TED Talk has been viewed over 4 million times. She has partnered with GE, Prudential, Lean Cuisine, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, and other organizations on principles of motivation. Her research has been supported with several large grants from the National Science Foundation and has been featured in hundreds of TV, radio, and print outlets around the world. She has received numerous awards for her work from organizations, including the Federation of Association of Brain and Behavior Scientists, the International Society for Self and Identity, the Foundation for Personality and Social Psychology, and the Society for Experimental Social Psychology. She received a PhD in social psychology from Cornell University, where she held a SAGE fellowship. So many interesting things. If you have had trouble or struggling to achieve certain goals, um, if you're interested in the whole area of motivation, perception, and how our eyes work in, in, in focusing and reading information, this is a show for you. We talk about how we can set achievable goal parameters, how we can, uh, how changing people's focus of attention can improve exercise, why failing to achieve a goal is not always always a bad thing and so many other things in and around this subject area. Please do stay with us. We will be back in just a few minutes to doc- to talk to Dr. Emily Balchettis.
Everybody knows heartbreak, isolation. Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show has been recorded. Uh, no opportunity for calling in, unfortunately, but please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on those locations. Dr. Balchettis, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, me, like 4 million other people, became introduced to you and an area of your research on your wonderful TED Talk, Why Some People Find Exercise Harder Than Others. And we are going to leave that for the time being. We'll get to that for sure. It was very fascinating. So congratulations first on that. That's a wonderful achievement. So many, many people watching it. Thank you. Thanks. So you are an expert in the area of behavioral science and motivation. What brought you to this particular space of study? Well, I mean, 
some people joke that research is actually me search. So, you know, like <laughs> I, I, that is part of it too, is that I'm looking for myself, for my family, for my friends, you know, what are solutions that are outside of the box? What are, what are problems that maybe we don't even realize that we are experiencing when we're trying to make progress on a goal, particularly one that's related to maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, like reflecting on my own experiences, but then turning to decades of scientific literature, we were looking to see what do people use as strategies when they're trying to eat healthier or move more? And is there a way for us to offer something new to, to, that, to that space? Did you find a pattern when you're doing your research of people who are successful at achieving health goals, life goals, career goals versus people that are having a bit more of a struggle to attain the goals they've set? I think we all have patterns. If we look at our own behavior, there are times in our life where we are more successful or there are goals that we're really working toward that motivate us and, and show better progress. And then there's times when we um, you know, experience something new in our life, like the birth of a new baby or, or transitioning to a new job or, or moving to a new location when our worlds change and then our habits, what might have been a good habit also changes. So rather than you know labeling somebody as, as good or as bad, I find more utility in just thinking about um, patterns within ourselves and how can we we change ourselves rather than um, putting that stark label that might make some people you know give up before they've even started. You know, when I work with people, um, I say, write down your goal, try and take baby steps, write down baby steps to try and achieve them, but. You know, what I've been reading about um, and some of your work, this may not always be the, the right way to go when you're trying to achieve something, is it? I, I think, you know, that is effective, but there's, there are things that we can add on to that strategy that can make it even more effective. So you can think about the three different possibilities you put out there, take baby steps. Now, yes, that is helpful, um, but we can also think about the alternatives. What about something that's very challenging, stretch goals, bucket lists, people like that kind of terminology, vision boards, they like thinking about that as well. And is that useful? And then the third possibility is, you know, maybe you can consider it like the Goldilocks (laughs) philosophy of something in the middle, something in between the the baby steps and the dreaming big, dreaming, shooting, shooting the moon or or going for what might seem impossible. Um, And science has looked at that, which is the best way to set goals. Should we take these baby steps? Should Should we be motivating ourselves by constantly like working towards that bucket list item or somewhere in the middle? And what um, what has been found to be effective um, might be counterintuitive. So baby steps are helpful because it can give us, you know, a sense of accomplishment, but it might not give us the energy that we need to really keep going for the long game. Because if we knew that we could accomplish that baby step, we set a goal that we are confident that we can achieve we're not really tricking ourselves. We can't trick ourselves into getting more energy and more excitement or a pat on the back because we kind of knew it all along that we would be able to accomplish that goal. But if we set the goals just at that level of like of vision boards or bucket list items, sometimes there's a, there's a, there's a two-part process here that might actually do us a disservice as well. That some research has found that setting that bucket list item, deciding this is what I'm shooting for, um, it, it can be sort of 
exciting because we've positioned ourselves mentally in that space of success. Figuring out what I want in my life actually is a goal for some people. That can be a challenge and accomplishing that is is useful. But people then stop the process of actually taking steps to accomplish that bucket list item or that dream board item because it just feels good having thought about it. So what science suggests is most effective is somewhere in the middle, this moderately challenging but not impossible goal setting process. Shoot for something that feels outside the bounds of what you've accomplished before, but doesn't push us into that impossibility state. Now, what I think is really cool is that researchers have quantified what is the impact of doing that, of setting these goals at that moderately challenging level of difficulty. And they looked at systolic blood pressure. That's the top number on your blood pressure reading. And, but psychologically, what we know is that it's a marker of our body's readiness to do something. If we know we have to take on a big physical challenge. Oh. <laughs> Here's my baby. <laughs> Beautiful sound. <laughs> she is reminding me that she is my, my moderately challenging, but not quite impossible goal no that I'm working steps. on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Literally the baby steps. <laughs> um, she's saying Hello. Anyway, so what scientists have found is that systolic blood pressure is an indicator of our body's readiness to do something. We might be about to go on a big hike. Systolic blood pressure will go up in anticipation of our bodies needing the energy to take that hike or a mental challenge. We know we're going to do some pretty difficult uh, algebra um, or helping our child with their calculus homework. Um, Not my child. She's too young for that. (laughs) But um, but our systolic... Yeah, systolic blood pressure goes up then too. So what happens is that when people set goals that are baby steps, their systolic blood pressure actually stays the same or goes down. And the same is true when they set goals that are really challenging, that might be in that realm of the bucket list or the impossibility, systolic blood pressure goes down. Because our bodies know, first of all, I don't really need energy to take those baby steps, or I can't even do this. So our bodies are giving up before we've even started. But when we set those goals at the moderately challenging level of difficulty, systolic blood pressure goes up. We're excited to try for something that might push us just beyond what we've ever thought is that we've ever accomplished before. And our bodies and our minds are working together to give us the energy we need to take those first steps. So setting goals properly is a practice and trying to achieve them is a a practice. It sounds like this is exactly so it doesn't come. It doesn't come intuitively to a lot of people, but does it come intuitively to those? You know, you have your your great book, How Successful People See the World. And is this a small niche of people that are just they just know what they want? They know how to get it. They know how to achieve it. Or is goal setting, achieving goals? Is it a practice for everybody? Well, I think it's the the very rare person that just gets it right the first time they try it without thinking about it. They've stumbled upon something that works and they are able to stick to that routine and they never falter. There's never any obstacles and they're always on the straight and narrow. I think that's the rare person. Um, but of course, they they exist. There are some people that that happen to use some strategy and it happens to be the strategy that works for them in, in this context and they may not know why. Um, but, but that, if you feel like, if you believe that that is, there's a kind of person who just does this naturally, that can be alienating for the rest of us, myself included, um, that it doesn't come naturally for them. I, I, you know, I've struggled with my weight. I've struggled with my eating just like most people do. So my natural inclination isn't going to, isn't going to lead me to the place of health that I'd like to be. But these strategies that, that I focus on are ones that can be taught. 
So some people might find that they set goals at that moderately challenging level of difficulty uh, and that they have the motivate, they chronically find the motivation that they need. But that doesn't come naturally for me. Sometimes I feel like, oh man, I would just like to cross things off my to-do list. I want those baby steps. That's what I need to be working on. Um, but when I think about the science, I realize like, well, that's not going to be motivating for the long run. Or if I just try to shoot the moon, I'm going to feel overwhelmed and I'm not going to see the kind of progress that I'm going to need to keep my motivation high. So what we're talking about and what I focus on are those things that, yeah, some people just do them, but for the rest of us, they can be taught. Mm-hmm. Now, are there times when goal setting doesn't improve the odds of achieving them? There are times when we set goals and it, and it doesn't improve the odds of achieving them. And that can be because we've stopped the process of goal setting too early. Now, what I mean by that is that, you know, lots of times people need to know what are they working for. They need to make that dream board, that vision board. They need to articulate where do I want to be in five years time. And then some people know that the next step that needs to happen is connecting that sort of dreamy, far off future to the here and now. I need to think concretely about what can be accomplished today, this week and this month to help me make progress towards that that bigger vision that I have for myself. So we need to dream big, number one. Number two, plan concretely. But number three is something that oftentimes is overlooked. And in fact, some people might think like, there's no way this is going to be helpful. In fact, it could be demotivating. And that's foreshadowing failure or thinking about the obstacles. At the point in time that we are setting our goals and thinking concretely about how can we get there, We also need in those same planning sessions to be thinking about what's going to get in our way of actually accomplishing those goals. Where might it be derailed? Where are resources going to be spread too thin? And can I I come up with the solutions should I experience those obstacles right now? I think a great example for me is um, when I was learning about Michael Phelps and how did he do what he did? Back in 2008, as we recall, that's when he was really on the international stage, big time um, in the in the Beijing Olympics. And he was on the brink of doing something in those Olympic Games that nobody has done in the history of the Olympics, which is win eight gold medals in a single Olympic game. At the time of this story, he had already won, won seven of them, and he had just one race ahead of him um, to beat this uh, international world historic record. And he just had to swim the 200 fly. That's what he's known for. That's what he is famous for. So it was almost like a no-brainer that he's going to win this race. He's going to break Olympic history. But as he dove in for the 200-meter fly, his goggles started to leak. And by the time he had just one length of the pool left to go, his goggles were completely filled with water and he was swimming blind. Now, if that ever happened to me, which it wouldn't because like, I can hardly swim and I certainly wouldn't make it to the (laughs) Olympics – I would have completely panicked and and thrown in the towel, but not for him because he had foreshadowed this obstacle. He and his coach had routinely thought of how, what are the different ways that my race could go wrong and having goggles leak was one of those things that they had planned for. In fact, sometimes um, it's said that his coach would take the goggles off his head right as he was jumping into the pool, diving into the pool and smash them on the ground, I guess for a dramatic effect, mm-hmm. um, but to make sure he couldn't swim with his goggles. And what he had already planned in advance, if this happens to me, then I'm just going to turn to my stroke count. 
he had practiced um, counting his strokes, swimming basically with his eyes closed. And so that's what he turned to in those 2008 games. He started counting his strokes. He knew exactly how many strokes it would take for him to get from one end of the pool to the other. He did it. He won that race. He won his eighth gold medal and he would go on to win 15 more in his career. So to me, that is a great example of how planning for those obstacles in advance gives you the solution when you don't have time to think about it or to practice it or to know what you're going to do. When you're short on time, you're under stress, you're in competition. That's not the time when you are when you have the best resources or you're most able to think about what am I going to do if this stands in my way? You want to be able to just turn to that plan B or that plan C or that plan D um, in the moment. Mm-hmm. And he did it. And, uh, and, and it's not demotivating, right? Some people might think that planning for those ways that all that my best laid plans are going to fail would be off-putting, would make me feel like, oh, well, then why am I doing this? If these are all the ways it's going to go wrong, why would I even try? But it gives you that safety net or it offers you the life jacket. You know where the life jacket is before you've even started taking off for your, for your sale. In, in your research, so you've got Michael Phelps, elite, world-class, and then you've got, you know, generally the rest of us. Um, in your research, have you found that there are certain people that can harness motivation from anywhere and that there are other people, even though they really want to achieve a goal, they just lack that motivation? Like, where do they get inspired? Yeah, and and that's what our lab focuses on. You know, we've had the opportunity um, to talk with world-class Olympic athletes and ask, what are you doing? What's helping you get through a a race or a routine? What's helping you win the gold medals that you do? Um, And that's a lot of fun to meet those people, but it's also informative for helping us to design interventions or tactics to teach people that, that have no goals of making it to the Olympic stage, but are just there to improve their own health. And one of the things that we have found is that is is what you know I like to think of as sort of a secret superpower that when we're looking at the world around us there are ways that we can look and we can use our eyes that can help improve our performance increase our motivation help us push through when we're you know when we're a little bit too tired to to go out for the next walk or we need to increase the number of steps that we're taking for our own health There are strategies based on what world-class athletes are doing that we can implement ourselves that all involve the power of our own sight. We can teach ourselves to look differently, and it opens up a whole host of other opportunities for us. Which takes us, uh, perfect timing, (laughs) which takes us pretty much into your TED Talk and the the basis of that. Now, I want to leave that for the second half for the most part, but um, something that that intrigues me that you've kind of brought up here. You're, we can focus on the same thing, right? But we can see, our, looking at a picture, we can both focus on the same picture, yet we interpret it completely different. How does our interpretation, our, our mind's eye, uh, the picture in front of us, how does that ebb and flow to this whole idea of achieving goals, What I think is amazing about our eyes is that it is sort of a a direct connection to what we do. What we see predicts what we do. And, um, And so I think there's great power in that. If we want to change what we do, we can start by changing what we see. Now, if you've, you might think that like, oh, that sounds silly or what does that even mean? We can think of examples of like, 
of driving home. If we are, if we commute, if you commute by car, um, you know, you can think of all the times that you've driven home sort of on an autopilot where you get in the car at your office parking lot and you show up at home back in your driveway. And have you been really paying attention to every corner that you, that you turned onto or every straightaway that you went down? Probably not. I mean, you work, you can still be a safe driver, but you're not really paying attention to everything that you passed along the way. Would you know how many people were on the sidewalks between your office and your home? Probably not, because we're not really paying attention to that. So there's something about what we have just experienced that we're not seeing. And I think that's an example that we can all sort of resonate with, that there, there's something around us that we're not paying attention to. But what if we taught ourselves to pay attention to it or to look at something that we might otherwise overlook? Can we see a change in our behavior? And the answer is yes. To put it in the context of health, again, with the idea that what we see predicts what we do, we can just think about how do we snack? What are we doing when we're snacking? Okay, if you get the munchies and you go to your pantry, you open up the door and you start looking first, like, oh, what's in here? What can I eat? And you're looking for something that's tasty or you do that with your refrigerator. What's well, what? And I joke with my husband that he only eats what's on the like outermost layer of what's in the refrigerator and he never pulls back the first layer to see what's in the back of the fridge. Mm-hmm. And that's my job, right? That's why <laughs> things go moldy in the back is because he only eats the first layer. He only eats through the first layer of the fridge. Um, so if we want to snack healthier, we can sort of take those anecdotes or those examples and use them to our advantage. If we don't want to, if we want to be cutting back on the processed foods that we eat, then our pantry probably shouldn't be stocked with those chips. Don't bring them in the house in the first place. Um, instead, put almonds, put walnuts as that first layer of what we see at the front of our refrigerators or at the front of our pantries. Have that snack drawer be filled with the healthier options so that when we are sort of snacking on autopilot or not really paying attention to our health goal, how many calories have we taken in? What's dinner going to look like? Do I have expendable calories right now that I can put towards snacking? When we're not doing all that sort of mental arithmetic and really paying attention to what we eat, we can set up our kitchens or our, 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 our food worlds in a way that will automatically naturally lend us towards making better choices when we're not really paying attention as finely as we should be to those decisions. So that's part of the organizational piece of goal setting. So obviously, step by step, and I guess this is where we stumble sometimes in achieving goals is we haven't followed proper steps to achieving them. Is that fair to say? That's part of it. Or just realizing that a lot of what we do, we can't really be focusing all of our cognitive effort on. That there's a lot that's going on in our lives and in our worlds and in our minds at any one point in time. So we can set those goals, finding a moderately challenging but not impossible goal that we're working towards achieving. And we can think about what are the obstacles that are going to stand in our way. And it might be the three uh, o'clock post-lunch energy drag moment that leads me to snack looking for a coffee or looking for or for a sugary snack that's going to um, you know get me through that three o'clock slump but then if one of those obstacles might be is that like well, yeah usually at three o'clock is when I'm trying to race and finish up what I have going on during the day right before I got to go pick up the kids from school and so I'm not really focusing on this best laid goal the moderately challenging but not impossible goal that I set for myself if that's my obstacle what can I do in advance as I prepare as I prepare for that? That's going to just automatically um, have my it help me to make an automatic choice that's better or more aligned with the goal that I have. Uh, there's a cool yeah. Sorry, there's a ahead. cool 
Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a there's a cool study that was done with Google employees. Actually, you know, Google is famous for lots of things, and one of those one of the many things is their snacks that they have available, the free food that is around the corner and all the little you know stations in the hallways and their and their lunch cafeterias as well for all their employees. But what they were noticing, you know, early on into this sort of social experiment is that like yes, all these snacks kept their employees present and engaged and happy, but also unhealthy. People were gaining weight at Google because of all of the snacks that were around. They might be going to the restroom or going to a meeting down the hall or on another floor and they pass a snack station. So what they decided to do is test this idea, the power of sight. And does and can we use sight to our advantage to make healthier choices? So they didn't take away the snacks. Um, instead, they put some of the more unhealthier options like the M&M chocolate candies in opaque containers where it's not glass and you wouldn't necessarily see through it, but they're available. It's just that your eyes aren't going to land on it first. Or how did they, where did they put the beverages within the refrigerators? The less healthy, more sugary beverages were lower on, on those refrigerator shelves and water was what was most easily seen on the eye level shelves or, uh, or in, in the easier to access refrigerators. And so they didn't take the snacks away, but they made the unhealthier ones harder to see and the healthier options easier to see. And what they found was that on average, Google employees were eating like several hundred fewer calories in just snacks each week as monitored by the people who refill those snacking stations and then reported on what was consumption for the week for all the employees that passed by those snack stations. Very interesting. It's identifying your excuses and wiping them off the board or putting them in a place where you can't use them. You know, it, does, it makes so much sense, but it, it, you know, we know how hard it is to, to an everyday life to try and achieve goals. And especially when it comes to eating and, and exercise. And that's what we're going to focus on the next half of the show, because your Ted talk was outstanding. And I think it's, you know, people have a hard time being motivated to eat well, as you said, but also to exercise. So when we come back, everybody, we are going to dive into the TED Talk and talk about maybe ways we can improve or achieve some exercise goals. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. I was young and running 
Listening to the Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back to the Health Hub. We are talking with Dr. Emily Balchettis. We are going to, Dr. Balchettis, dive into your TED Talk, Why Some People Find Exercise Harder Than Others, because it resonates with me on so many different levels. And 
not just exercise as a whole, but different types of exercise. I think a lot of us want to go the easy path. Um, I don't know if that's what you found in your research. Um, is it hard to push ourselves to do hard things? It is for everybody um, to push ourselves to do hard things. Now, what counts as hard can change from one mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. to the next. Um, and, and it can change from, you know, one time in life to the next. What was hard when you were 20 is, is going to be different than what's hard when you're 50 or when you're 70. Um, but what I think, but I think there are solutions that can help us overcome those challenges, um, regardless of how old we are, and uh, and across people who might have different kinds of challenges or defined a challenge in a different way. When we're talking specifically about exercise, um, one of the big things that people identify or speak to me about is I tried this and it didn't work. And I tried this and everyone says it's supposed to be great, but I hated it. So to me, it's biting off maybe more than you can chew or not going down the path of exercise that maybe you enjoy. Or is it something else? Is it something about attention and our focus that is really the culprit here when we're not achieving our goals? Well, you know, motivation researchers, of which I'm part, um, you know, come up with a formula for what is motivation. And some people define it as expectations times value. Do you think you can achieve this thing? And would you like it if you did achieve this thing? And you need to have both of those need to be non-zero. They need to be something other than zero for you to have motivation of any kind. But thinking about motivation that way, I think gives us room to play then. If we just define motivation as like, you got to really want it. That's, that's literally half the equation. That's half the formula. But there's room for us to focus on something else of, of feelings of success and and, and self-efficacy and the belief that I can do something. Even if you really want it, if you feel like there is no way, like literally it is impossible, there is no way that I could accomplish this, then your motivation is still going to be zero. You might really want it, but why it's not worth putting any effort in if there's absolutely no way you could achieve. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, you know, when we think about motivation that way, it gives us room to uh, open up the conversation. In your TED Talk, let's walk through this because it was really fascinating. You talk about uh, the mind's eye and keeping your, your eye on the prize. Walk us through what you found when you had people sort of zero in on a target goal versus people who kind of tried to attempt a goal on their own. Yeah. So, you know, we, again, I came in, I came to this idea by having um, talked to these Olympic athletes and asked them, what are you looking at as you're trying to push yourself a little bit harder, uh, win the competition? And then, and then I wondered, is there something that about their experience that would be useful for the rest of us? And the answer is yes. They told me something that was really different than what I thought. I expected that they'd be telling me like, oh, I'm, you know, I, like my peripheral vision is, is you know, 2020. I, I'm keenly aware of where I'm at relative to all the competition. But that's not what they're doing. When they're trying to increase their pace and they're trying to break, you know, a personal best, what they're doing actually is focusing. They keep their eyes, um, you know, trained on some sort of target. It could be the finish line. It could be the, the competitor up ahead. Um, but they almost imagine that there's a spotlight that's shining on this goal ahead of them. And they focus on that until they meet it. And then they set another goal. And that's what they said that they're doing is that they're using sort of this heightened, heightened visual focus 
um, keeping their eyes on the prize. That's what we've colloquially termed it. So when we took that idea and started teaching normal people, not Olympic athletes, just those of us that have regular routine goals to try to get more steps in, walk farther, maybe try to walk or run faster, we found that that strategy is effective for them as well. It is something you can teach people to do, just like I've described it. You can teach people to sort of you know, disregard what's on the left or the right, choose a target up ahead. That's a goal that you're, you're trying to walk towards. Maybe it's a new building that you haven't quite seen up close yet. It's a stop sign several blocks ahead that you can see street lights that are up there. Uh, focus your eyes on that, keep them focused. And what we found when we compared what happens when people do that compared to whatever they do naturally, look however you want was the other set of sort of baseline instructions we found that people were able to move. They walked um, in an exercise task um, 23% faster. And they said it hurt 17% less than people who were attending, looking at their world as they naturally do. The exercise was exactly the same. We had people put weights on their ankles, raise their knees up high and walk a set distance. That finish line was as far away for one person as it was for the next but their experience was different. It felt easier. And in fact, they were more efficient. They moved faster. They burned calories at a higher rate by simply changing how they looked at that goal. Why is that? Is it, uh, is it a clear focus? Like, I, I find it, if we could find the why to that, I think that would be illuminating. Yeah. So that we also wondered that we, that was what the next five or seven years of our, of our work has been is to understand why, what is happening. There are a couple different things. You know, you've, you've already alluded to this idea of illusions that you might look at something and, and you might see it in a way that's really different than the person next to you. Well, that's what was happening for people who had their eyes on the prize. When they were narrowly focusing on the finish line that we had created for them, that finish line looked closer to them. Across a variety of different measures, that finish line looked 20 to 30% closer to them than the people who looked around the world in a more wider frame, you know, as they naturally would. So there was an illusion of proximity that that narrowed focus of attention produced. You can try that for yourself. Like if you're listening to this now and then you're, you're going to go out for a walk later on, try that. Try choosing a target, a building or a tree that's farther away um, and focus on it. And, and what happens? It, it feels a little bit closer than if you are paying attention to, you know, all of the 10 obstacles that you'd have to walk past before you made it to that tree or made it to that building. It feels closer. Now, what happens after that visual illusion is experienced is that it has a whole host of cascading effects for our psychology. It changes our motivation. Feeling that a finish line is closer, seeing it is closer, leads people to feel like, hey, it's not that hard to make it there. I think I can do it. That wouldn't be as difficult. I think I'm up to the challenge. I'm pretty sure I can make it there. And in fact, I want to start trying now. We've measured, you know, six to eight different psychological constructs, things that happen when we have that illusion of proximity. Um, and all of, the, all of what we have studied lends to the conclusion that people's motivation increases because they now think it's possible, whereas before it felt less possible and to some people even impossible. 
So narrowing our focus of attention creates this illusion of proximity that increases our feelings of possibility. And when we think something is possible, we're a little bit more excited to try it. We're changing that expectation component of the formula for motivation. And that's what's leading people to walk faster. And it defies their expectations. And they say that it hurts less. But aren't some people just more optimistic than others? I mean, you can have someone who is, you know, what we would call in decent shape versus someone who isn't. But the optimism of the person who isn't, that build, that makes up for a lot of other stuff, doesn't it? It seems to me like it, that there has to be some optimism in, in what your mind's eye is seeing and in perception. Well, yes, that is true. But if we have the goal to try to exercise and we aren't optimistic that we can do it, that's what it makes me so excited about this sort of eyes on the prize strategy is that we can we can have a direct impact on their expectations for success. And we can sort of, at least in the moment, maybe artificially um, change their feelings of possibility. And that's one way to increase optimism for those that maybe don't naturally come upon it. And what about other areas of exercise? Have you done any research? Uh, say, for instance, someone has a weight target that they want to lift. Are they envisioning bigger weights or how does that work? Yeah, um, we haven't done it with weight training in any particular sense. Um, but uh, yeah, but I think what what doesn't necessarily work is trying to apply this tactic on the treadmill. That's one that gets asked a lot is mm-hmm. what if we're, you know, you know, what if we're not out there in the wilds of our of our neighborhood trying to get more steps in? Does it does it work if I'm at home on the treadmill? And I think there the answer is no, because treadmills are just so boring, honestly, mm-hmm. um, in the technical sense of it. Uh, so their distraction is, is a better tactic. So it's not to say that um, there's a very narrow uh, window of opportunity for where um, narrowing our focus of attention would work, um, but it's about knowing and being flexible with the tools that are in our tool belt. Mm-hmm. So this narrowed focus of attention does have these dramatic effects. It helps people walk farther. It hurts less when we have done studies to see like, well, well what happens for the days and weeks that follow? They take more steps. They go out for more walks. Um, they walk at a faster pace. They get more miles in, even when we're not standing there watching what they're doing. Um, but that this tactic doesn't, you can't do it if you're going to be running a marathon. That That's exhausting. Keeping this narrowed focus of attention, setting and resetting and resetting goals won't be sustainable over 26 miles. Um, and it doesn't work if we're on a treadmill because we're going nowhere. Just focusing on the wall that's ahead of us or on the television screen that we're that we're looking at, that's not going to produce the same sort of cascading effects for these visual illusions and the motivational consequences. So we need to be flexible with how many tools we do try to employ and then when do we employ them. But beyond exercise, this narrowing your focus of attention is an effective strategy for anything that involves time. So we might have a goal, maybe it involves weight training, but we might have a goal that we're trying to hit in the far off future. And that can be challenging of knowing that each day I need to make a choice. I need to do something if I want to be able to hit this far off distal goal, this this goal that might be achieved in in a month or six months or five years time. It can be hard to constantly make a decision today that's going to benefit this sort of future self. Mm -hmm. But a narrowed focus of attention can be useful there too, because 
it can connect that far off future to my current self. It can sort of shrink that that time gap and help us understand why if I if I don't eat the chocolate cake today, why that will be beneficial for me in six months time. Well, fair um, enough. Yeah. And we actually tested this with with other goals, one related to our financial health and well-being. Um, you know, saving for retirement is something that we all would benefit from starting much earlier than, than we likely do. But that's challenging. You're 20 years old, you're 25 years old, you got your first paycheck coming in. And people might advise you, well, start putting 10% aside for, for when you turn 65. That's 40 years in the future. <laughs> what 25-year-old is going to do that? Even when you tell them and you explain how compound interest works and that they could be millionaires if they started this at 25, um, by the time they're 65, they'll have all this money. Like, yeah, but I've got bills today. I've got rent. I've got new car payments. Um, you know, I've got my student loans I'm trying to pay off. I'm sorry, but like 40 years into the future, I just can't be thinking that far off. And so we tried to play with that idea of like, is there a way to create a narrowed focus of attention that can create an illusion of proximity with respect to time that can help people make a tougher choice now that will benefit them um, in the future? And uh, what we found, we, we were riffing off of Hal Hirschfield, a, a, a professor at University of California, Los Angeles, um, about some research that he did. I took a photograph of each of the students that I was working with. They all had jobs. They were all on the brink of graduating from college. And I asked them, are you saving for retirement? None of them were, even though they all had jobs where they could be. And with that photograph that I took of them, I used computer software and I morphed their face with an old famous successful person like Maya Angelou or, or Betty White or Dan Rather, um, people, uh, people that were older and successful. And I showed these photographs to these 25-year-old college students. Most of them were horrified to see what it would look like to have white hair or wrinkles on their faces. Um, but what it did was help them envision, like make concrete um, what their future self might look like. I had them take some time to think about what's it going to be like when you are 65 years old? What's your day going to be like? What, what, would, what would that feel like? What would a happy day look like at that age? And that experience helps them to shrink that that temporal dimension. Now, 65 didn't seem so far away because they could concretely envision it. They focused on that future self um, and then and, and had a fairly pleasant time of it after they got over the shock of seeing what white <laughs> hair looked like. Uh, and then I asked them, what, how, what are your intentions for retirement now? And for 55 out of 60 of these students, they all said, I get it. I'm going to start saving. I, I, I'm going to start saving for my retirement. That's amazing. And, you know, all of these things, and, and I think you're right. I think what you've, uh, for, you know, to make this a very simplistic ending here is the focus is the key. And maybe, you know, going beyond the podcast here and the radio show, trying to find your focus and trying to, uh, as we said at the beginning, achieving goals can be a practice thing. And there's nothing wrong with failing um, and a goal even if you have to reset the expectations and drive at that same goal again. Um, I think that what your work is doing is great to help us in all aspects of life. And you've written this great book, um, Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. I'm assuming that this has all to do, the book has all to do with what we're talking about. Where can people dive more into this topic? 
Well, uh, you can find this book anywhere where books are are sold, of course. Um, and I write, I post, you know, some articles on psychology today that are available for anybody to, to read um, that can give you some sort of smaller snippets of insight into these issues, especially as they relate to what we might be facing in our society at any given point in time. Um, and follow me on, on LinkedIn, where I share more of these tips and tricks. Oh, fascinating stuff you're doing. Now, is there anything new in the offings, any studies that are, are really, you know, just beginning that you're really excited about? You know, one thing that we're really working on um, made me, you, what you were just talking about reminded me of this is that the word failure is challenging for people. So when I would encourage us to not think about the obstacles that we face or the setbacks we experience as failures. That's a word that nobody likes to have associated with them, but that everybody experiences. We all experience challenges. We all have times in our life where we take two steps forward and one step back, but it's what do we do during that one step back period of time? Do we call it a failure and decide that this is not a place for me? This will not work for me. Do we use those kinds of black and white labels uh, um, on ourselves and on our experience? Some people do. And when we do that, we probably give up before we really need to, that we can think about, you know, these challenges as normative, as opportunities for growth, as a place in time where we can try out something new and have have our experience push us to try something new. So I, you know, some of the work that we're doing now suggests like, let's try to shed that word failure from the way that we reflect our own experiences. And maybe we'll get farther if we do. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure and very enlightening conversation. Very happy you could join us. Thanks so much. Everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.